Hello and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Nick. What? What scares you? (sighs) That's a great question. Did you ever see the movie In the Line of Fire with Harrison Ford and John Malkovich? Mm -mm. (laughs) Actually, I could just say John Malkovich. Okay. Oh, John Malkovich scares you. Yeah. Like him as a crazy... It's like basically about a crazy... A crazy person who's trying to assassinate the president, played by John Malkovich, is the crazy person. And then Harrison Ford is the president. And it terrified me as a kid. Also, for musical theater buffs out there, the scene in Fiddler on the Roof when Tevia is visited by the ghost of his mother's mother. Uh, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> the ghost of Tevia's mother's mother scared his you? Gram- his, like, his mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. Okay. Everybody has their unique. I I really stumped you there. (laughs) I wasn't quite sure what you were going to answer with, but I'm glad that you're able to come up with something so specific. Oh, was it supposed to be more like what scares you? And you're like failing, like something like that. No, it's just because it's Halloween. I just wanted to keep it in theme. Oh, also, I mean, as a kid, Halloween scared me. Like any, I just think that like we should not have a holiday where people get to wear masks. Yeah, but isn't it ironic this year? Like anonymity is the root of all evil. And you can quote me on that. Yeah, that's like the internet, right? Seriously. My best Halloween costume was like last year I went really deep and did like a historically accurate Frida Kahlo costume. And like I visited her home. I read about how she made her accoutrement and I actually by hand sewed from canvas and hand painted a corset in the style of like her back braces that she used to decorate. In fact, I had a unibrow already. <laughs> you, you already had that. You were, <laughs> so, that's what you were working with. <sighs> my second best Halloween costume was this was a dark time in my life. I worked at American Apparel for a few months <laughs> in college. <laughs> and like American Apparel's like biggest. It's like their Black Friday is Halloween, the week before Halloween. Because oh, I would get there. all my shit at American mm-hmm. Apparel. And our manager was like, you know, you don't have to, but you're strongly encouraged to dress up for Halloween this week during your shifts wearing, you know, American Apparel outfits, which the only outfits that you can make as a girl at American Apparel are like... 80s fitness instructor. Or I'm a mouse in a leotard. <laughs> 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 but they had these things called riding pants. They looked like, you know, horseback riding pants. And so I wore those with like a button down and some like equestrian boots that I had. And then I did this really gory makeup on my face in the shape of a horse's hoof. Like I had gotten kicked in the face, (laughs) blood dripping out of my ear and my nose. And I go to work. And I got in so much trouble, they sent me home. They were like, you didn't do like the sexy girl Halloween costume that Dove Charney loves. And like customers were were complaining. Really? Because they they, they weren't expecting I'd be like, you know, organizing a rack and they'd like ask a question and I'd turn to look at them. (laughs) Blood dripping down. Anyway, that's my Halloween story. I love that for you. I mean, this Halloween is obviously a very weird... Halloween, and I will be doing nothing. 
Yeah, it hasn't I crossed mean, my mind. Is, isn't isn't trick or treating canceled? You know, I've talked to a few of my friends that have been invited to Halloween parties. I use the word friends strongly. Um, they work for me, but they, <laughs> <laughs> but and they're younger and cooler. But they they were talking about these like New York kids having Halloween parties, and it's like. I feel like this is the same group of kids that were like whining and complaining that they were going to put AstroTurf at Tompkins and then COVID happens and they're all like partying. I thought it was actually going to end up on the news one night. They were they had this like crazy block party, no masks. Everybody was making out and they were like all posting videos. And I'm like, you want us to sign your stupid skate park petition? But now you're going to give us all COVID. I feel like the biggest issue right now is that people have COVID fatigue. But just because you're over COVID doesn't mean that COVID's over you. No, this is a plague. There was a really interesting series that they posted on Amazon they should bring back. It was about the plague and it was a series of lectures. And it was really interesting to see the parallels and how people are reacting to this plague versus the Black Plague in the medieval times. They would break out the types of people. Like there were the people that would like seclude themselves and they were the populations that survived. And then there were the people that got ultra religious and they would like walk through towns like hitting themselves with like the barbed whips, you know what I mean? What's that called? Self-flagellation? Yeah. And then there were the hedonists that were like, fuck it. And then they would party. They were partying and having sex. I'm just like worried that COVID's going to be nowhere near over by March and we're like not going to be able to be in the hospital for the birth of our child. I have positive thoughts on that. And I have a top story to talk about that is also in line with that. Let's chug through. Let's do it. So this is a story that I am not qualified to really understand, let alone retell. But this was an article in Women's Wear Daily that was talking about how L'Oreal is making shampoo bottles from carbon emissions. So somehow they're producing the first plastic cosmetics bottle that is made, they take the emissions and they convert the emissions into ethanol and then the ethanol into ethylene by dehydrating it, and then they polymerize it into a polyethylene, and then they use the polyethylene to make packaging. I love it. This is a classic case of a closed-loop system. That's what corporations, big companies need to be doing. Bravo, L'Oreal. I honestly thought you guys were not super great, but now I think you are. This is incredible stuff. Like you can't. But my just question put it- is like when you're doing all it sounds like a lot of processes to go through to get from one step to the final product. Does that mean there's emissions happening, you know, the whole way through? Probably. Yeah. So then it's sort of complicated. It's con- it, Well, it always is, and there's no perfect solution, right? And it's this solution will need to evolve into a, an even better one later down the road. But this is great because, as we know, there are recycled plastics that you can use in beauty products, but the percentage of PCR plastics, which is post-consumer recycled plastics, in different packaging components, as the percentage goes down, the quality or the reliability of the material goes up, right? Because virgin plastic is the most reliable. It's also the only plastic that can really use reliably on components with like hinges or that see a lot of movement. So pumps, mists, flip caps are usually never made of PCR. Right. Why am I rambling about this? You love to see it. Yeah, you do have to make these changes at the highest level possible. 
instead of just saying, oh, let's give detailed recycling instructions to our consumer. That's not changing. Like separate this from that and then like add this to that. It's like it gets very cumbersome. Yeah. So the highest level possible, if you can be doing the most to be sustainable, create closed loop systems to where you're taking the emissions of the stuff that you're doing and putting it back into the cycle of stuff that you're creating, which I don't know technically if this L'Oreal project or innovation innovation is that exactly because I don't know where the emissions are coming from to begin with. If they are L'Oreal's own emissions, probably not. But interesting concept. Can't wait to see. L'Oreal is also, they announced previously, but recently that they are planning on being 100% carbon neutral by 2025. I think this is all part of a larger initiative that L'Oreal announced recently. They have a goal by 2030 that all the plastics used in their product packaging will be from uh, recycled or bio-based sources. And they aim to half the amount of greenhouse gas emissions per finished product versus where they were at in 2016. What's Finch for good work? Phone something. So this is a interesting the times are changing story there are basically a bunch of brands and this is as reported in glossy a bunch of brands including paracone basha anastasia beverly hills surat beauty troy surat's makeup line are partnering with costco the wholesale club and launching product or actually limited edition sets in their stores you gotta move through that inventory somehow well, I think it's interesting. It's just it's how people are shopping, especially, you know, during a pandemic, I imagine going to grocery stores, buying in bulk and, you know, you go where the consumer is. You don't try to make her go to a, you know, third location. And I mean, what's interesting about Costco, and they mentioned this in the article, is that business is booming at Costco. For the fourth quarter, sales were up 13% year over year, and e-commerce sales experienced a 90.6% jump. It sounds like a lot of these like more premium brands are using this just as a marketing channel and then quickly exiting because these are just like kind of limited edition you know, sets that they're launching in Costco for a limited period of time, they sell through and then they're out and they're hoping that the customer will come with them back to, I don't know, Sephora.com. Or Do you know who needs to get into this game? Who? Trader Joe's. You don't know about Trader Joe's beauty? I mean, I do, but like, I, it's a pretty paltry selection. I mean, the people love it on... Reddit. Reddit. They love it. There have been like posts about you know, which Trader Joe's. I've tried the different things. I just haven't found any that are actually good. Yeah, I don't know. It's not my not my wheelhouse. I'm I'm not really a Trader Joe's customer. And that's just purely because of the fanfare around it in New York. It's just like I can't do the lines. No, I mean like in LA the lines aren't as long, but I like I just feel like there's an opportunity at Trader Joe's to like reach the right consumer for a lot of these skincare and makeup brands. And right now it's only in house products. And there's not a ton of variety and they don't have like kind of, you know, how Trader Joe's has sometimes racist, sometimes cute, like sub brands. Mm -hmm. They don't have any of those. As far as I know, like they don't have any of those in store. And it's, I feel like it'd be a good opportunity. Yeah. It's also a great way for Trader Joe's to start getting online if they're not already in some capacity. Speaking of online, Hmm. Twitch. Twitch. Twitch, for those who don't know it, is a social network that is very popular among the video gaming crowd. So people 
It's a live streaming platform and you can live stream video games. During the protests over the summer, there were a lot of people live streaming the protests too through Twitch. What makes it different than like Instagram Live? Well, Instagram Live is like so limited, right? Like you can't like have your video game screen. Got it. So you can have like a screen in screen kind of thing. Yeah, I think you can do like the possibilities are way beyond what they are on Instagram. I think the other thing I was realizing in reading this article was that why is this successful for brands to be on Twitch? And particularly beauty brands. Particularly beauty brands. Well, they mentioned Burberry too did their fashion show on Twitch. I have to imagine that probably didn't really like that probably didn't do super well because of I don't know what the link is between a Twitch user and the Burberry fashion show. It seems like a bit of a jump. But Michelle Fawn from M Cosmetics, who her claim to fame was she was one of the first like huge YouTubers. She's also an avid gamer, so she's naturally on Twitch anyway. And she has been seeing a lot of success in engaging her audience on Twitch because it's so authentic. She just launched a new product and her launch party, if you will, was on Twitch and her she was playing like League of Legends, uh, which is a video game with her audience and then also talking about this new product. And I guess it moved a lot of units for them, which is interesting. And I think that the takeaway for this story is that you really need like a brand platform fit. So like Michelle Fan is the right, you know, brand and personality to be on Twitch. I think from what you and I, you know, were imagining though don't have insight into the actual data like a Burberry is probably a more a bigger stretch but Congresswoman AOC did a gaming session last week and it was super popular so even like personalities not just brands are having success in 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 accessing a different community which is interesting so Burberry just should have put like a gamer in Burberry clothing Twitch has over 17.5 million daily active users um, when are we launching ours, Nick? I don't, I, Twitch might be, I might have to take a pass on Twitch, but funny little story with Necessaire, our first office was in a, in like this little corner office in a WeWork in Culver City. And there was a company, it was a sports team for gamers. And like, they were making so much money with like endorsements. Some of them would like just play video games all day. And they, they kept e-sports. on... Ex- e-sports. E-sports. E-sports, e-sports. They kept on like taking over more and more office space. And I was like, what do you... I like kept on like, trying to like understand like what they did. And like finally like they put it into like language that I could understand, which is like, we're like a sport. It's like a team and there's like competitions. There's like finals or whatever. But instead of playing sports, we're playing each other in video games. And I was like, oh. And anyway, but they like took over the entire WeWork. So obviously they were doing incredibly well. And I think Scooter Braun and like LeBron James were backing this. It was called 10,000 Thieves or 1,000 Thieves or something like that. I've never been that into video games. I think I might have aged out of this like marketing segment. I wanted to so badly when I was a little kid to be into video games because it was very cool. And I didn't. You chose Fiddler on the Roof instead. Yeah, I was more I was more on the fiddler on the Which, roof. Can we just pause track. for a second and do a quick arts and culture? I have a rebuttal. Last week you had a lot to say about Blackpink and because you watched their documentary. Well, I stayed up late last night watching it so that I was prepared for this conversation today because I feel like you 
really uh, came at them with a lot of, I don't know if it's because, you know, you come from a musical theater background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, I don't know. Are you seeing them have a lot of success and you have a podcast? But I, I don't know. But they worked very hard. I wasn't coming at them. I was like coming at the system that created them. You said they couldn't sing. You said they had no personal style. I did. Those are two things I did say. The personal style thing I will give you. It just, it was not that they have no personal style. Is that the personal style was so, their personal style was at odds with their like show style. And I just found that in the context of sort of this manufactured you know, vision for the company or sorry, for the band to be a little like sus. The main thing that I found, which I think is why there could, people could question their personal style is they are so secluded from the world around them. Like they've been in these training camps for like one of them was like six years. Yeah. And then they, and they pluck them up from when they're like really young, like 14 to 16. And even though like, there was the one, Rosé, her whole background story was, oh, I grew up in Australia until I was 16. So I had like a whole life before. And G-Suit as well, I guess, joined a little bit later. But you're making memories until you're 16. Aren't, like having those be like the only things that define you and then no, go into like amazing. training camp. Yeah. And then live in like this apartment complex. It's like, let them out. Let them live. Ugh. But I think the idea is like you get them young enough that you can sort of mold them and craft them into like exactly the pop stars you want them to be. I know. I know Jenny wants to get out the most. You could tell. Couldn't you? Yeah. I mean, she seems the, she seems the saddest. She seems like she has like some darkness inside and she hasn't been able to like fully express it. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I think fame in general is like a really tricky thing. I mean, you can quote me on that. And uh, I think that, like fame when you're sort of like thrust into it and sort of groomed for it is as we saw with Britney Spears, like a very complicated thing. Okay. Now that we've made right with the blinks, let's get back to top stories. The New York times wrote a very interesting piece about the housewives this week. (sighs) I'm disappointed. I mean, so there's been a lot of commotion on the internet about the fact that the Orange County housewives, in particular, Kelly Dodd, who is now married to a Fox News commentator, are sort of flaunting their non-mask wearing lifestyles. And, you know, because they're on TV not wearing masks, it's sort of making people at home who are watching the show feel like they don't need to wear masks. I know that, you know, when we were on Bitch Sesh the other week, the host of Bitch Sesh decided that they weren't even going to cover Orange County this season because they felt like in this political climate, in this social climate, and certainly during a pandemic, it didn't feel like appropriate to give them attention, which I think is it, which I think is interesting. I was reading their reviews and a lot of people were kind of upset that they weren't covering them. And then some people were saying bravo. So I guess the essence of this article was saying that social media, celebrities, stars, whatever you want to call them, whether you choose to believe that they are important or not, do have a great and grave effect on their viewers and followers. And just to boil it down to like the simplest point is like we have a reality TV star as president. So to kind of say that like these women and their like choices as flippant as they may come off on 
Instagram or wherever and as non-seriously as you may take them, like there are people taking them seriously and there are people. Yeah. Are and, like, and and what I guess the question, too, is then what responsibility does the network Bravo have to air Kelly Dodd without a mask during a pandemic? Is that an irresponsible decision? Well, she's doing it on her own social media channels. It's not necessarily Bravo, is it? But she's also I mean, like I've only watched the first I think only the first two episodes have aired. And like they're not I mean, I guess the pandemic hasn't happened yet. On the show. Oh, okay. Because what the new season has started, but... Just started. Got it, got it. I'll keep everyone abreast. So this kind of goes into our next topic that we wanted to cover, which is the meme of Kim K's 40th birthday island getaway. I haven't looked at these pictures. Can you break it down for me? <laughs> Wait, which pictures haven't you seen? Have you seen the memes? No. I, haven't, I, I just know that she like rented a private island for her 40th birthday and everyone's freaking out about it being tone deaf. So Kim had a 40th birthday party at their home in Calabasas or wherever they live. But then it came out that like she flew a ton of her friends and family to a private island and they had another like, you know, weekend getaway as the Kardashians are wont to do. But she posted photos, of course, otherwise nobody would know that they went, which begs the question, would they even go if not for just to tell people about it. But her tweet captioning the photos is, after two weeks of multiple health screens and asking everyone to quarantine, I surprised my closest inner circle with a trip to a private island where we could pretend things were normal just for a brief moment in time. And so people are on social media have taken that statement and been putting it with like really funny visuals. So you have like... Such um, as? Like they have like a cast photo from Lost caption <laughs> and they have like ronan farrow posted like renaissance painting of i think the artist's interpretation of hell you know where it's like these creatures like biting each other and like bleeding and <laughs> with, the, with the quarantine private island I, statement I'm like call I, can i i mean i'm not the first person to call this but i feel like the kardashians are on the way out yeah yeah I believe that as well and I think the the criticism isn't that they went at least my point of view is like it's not that they went right it's that they're showing it to everyone it's like have respect for like the world at large and don't rub this in people's faces don't influence people to think that there is an essence of normalcy there's nothing normal and there will be nothing normal going forward even like it's really funny because in contrast this week dr fauci the honorable not to have thanksgiving yeah he said in fact his direct quote to contrast kim's about pretending things are normal just for a brief moment in time he says i think it will be easily by the end of 2021 and perhaps even into the next year before we start having some semblances of normalcy yeah i mean also like the fact that courtney kardashian is wearing a lot of vote kanye merch is i mean talk about like reality stars having an influence and using it to bad effects the fact that anyone in this election would vote Kanye. I don't think that that's the issue. I think it's like, you, I don't think you can expect someone to request a mail-in ballot and actually like write in Kanye's name or stand in line. And, and Kanye Con- was on the Los, on the California ballot. Okay, so he's on the ballot. But I'm saying like the people that have that kind of attitude, I think, or that would be on the fence about, am I going to seriously vote and put forth the effort? I think when they see someone like Kourtney Kardashian and their family kind of joking about it, which that's the only way I can interpret wearing that kind of stuff around is like kind of with a wink. I think it can encourage people to just not vote. You know, it's like just to not take it seriously at all, because that's what it, that's how they're coming off. I mean, I, I don't, don't think there's I, any like risk that people are actually voting for Kanye. I think the more risk is that they're not voting <sighs> from your lips to God's ears. 
Listen up, God. Shall we get into, I mean, I think the one other thing we wanted to mention at the, at the bottom of top stories was just this idea that like, we're worried that nobody cares about makeup anymore. Oh, you are? Well, I mean, Jason <laughs> Wu is doing a Target collaboration, uh, a makeup line at Target. Nobody, I didn't really hear anybody talking about it. And then Pat McGrath launched a, a like Swarovski covered lip kit. Nobody talked about that. I'm what just does like Jason worried Wu that, know like, about I mean, makeup? I see that as like a cash grab. Like nobody's buying your clothes. So like, but everybody's buying beauties and so I'm going to do a makeup line. Yeah, I guess. I just wonder like are I think in general, it's been a slow few weeks in the beauty industry news wise. And I think that we've talked about how it's probably due to the fact that the election is consuming most of our conversations and our thoughts. And also, you know, people are not wanting to launch things during this election cycle and waiting till after the election, which makes sense. But it also, you know, I also wonder whether, you know, people are getting a little bit of fatigue. It's interesting. Wouldn't you think that they would all want to like make a shit ton of money before the election in case there's any like crazy unrest? (laughs) You'd think. You'd think. Should we get into our interview segment with Frank Vogel of Fermanish? So this week is another great week for noses. Yes, Frank is in the fragrance industry, kind of like a rock star. We were lucky to get to talk to him. He is the nose. Is there is there a more technical term than nose? I think nose is the technical term. Frank Vocal created, here's the list, Santal 33 for Lil Labo. The fragrance that launched a thousand memes. Glossier U. The new company's functional fragrance, which, if anyone hasn't tried it, is amazing. It's also like a semi-natural, quote-unquote, fragrance. But also, Sarah Jessica Parker's Covet, Jason Wu, Speak of the Devil, his Eau de Parfum, and like a zillion others. And what's funny, what's interesting about him, he sort of does both the high and the low thing. So he can create a Santal, he can create these Jason Wu fragrances, but then he also... He doesn't he doesn't sniff at, you know, creating like a Katy Perry Purr fragrance or a Sarah Jessica Parker fragrance or, you know, a what else? He's done like he's literally like you can name any fragrance and he's basically done it. My favorite is Glossier U. I'm also having a a love affair, another love affair with Centaur 33, which I've been wearing for the past few weeks, which is just like in a time of unrest and uncertainty, it's like a cashmere weighted blanket, which is to say we were excited to talk to Frank from New York where he was actually in his office. Luckily, he has stayed COVID negative and been very safe because as we know, loss of smell of your sense of smell is something that can happen with COVID. So we were very happy to hear that he's been taking a lot of precautions. Here is our interview with Frank. We were excited to talk to you because we end up talking a lot about fragrance on the podcast, just because I think, you know, Annie and I are both product junkies and we wear a lot of fragrances and you're an icon, and I don't mean to sound like a sycophant, but like you have created some of the most indelible fragrances that I've worn. I mean, I everything from Santal 33 to Glossier U to the functional fragrance by the new company. Like I am a big fan of your work. Um, and so I was excited to 
it took a little research as it does, I guess, with perfumers for other brands to figure out who you were. But once we once we found you and uh, were able to get this interview, it was exciting. Thank you to social media, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I I knew who you were because of Glossier mm-hmm. U. And my favorite part about meeting you and being able to come to the office was we actually went to your personal office and you had all of your fragrances that you've created over the years on your shelves. And I thought it was like such, I thought it was the coolest thing that you spoke of all of them, like with equal pride, you know, from like a more mass. They're my children. Yeah. Yeah. And you would think, you know, the beauty world, especially the fine fragrance world, people, no pun intended, can kind of like turn up their noses to something that's more mass versus something that is more on the luxury end of the scale. And I think it's really refreshing, I think, for our listeners to know that it's just as complicated and just as much of an artful process to create a mass fragrance than, you know, a $500 per ounce fragrance. Different challenge for sure, yeah. Speaking of like the idea of like a $50 fragrance versus a $500 fragrance, is it marketing and is it brand that is creating the difference in price or is it, are there actual ingredients that you're getting access to with a $500 fragrance that you're not getting with a $50 fragrance? Absolutely. No, I mean, the, the, the answer is absolutely yes. There's a huge difference. I, I like to compare it sometimes with food, you know, because, you know, you could make the same dish using different type of quality ingredient you know it all depends how fresh your vegetables are and you know how they were grown or the meats you're using in your food etc so with the raw materials we use in our fragrances they are you know very pure natural high grades and then there's also grades that are maybe of low quality Um, there's molecules that we use as well and uh, you know there's especially you know when we work on these very high-end fragrances we have access to ingredients that we wouldn't be able to use, you know, because basically when you create a fragrance, you have to make a choice on what ingredients you use in your formula. And basically, you know, also, unfortunately, always have to consider how much they will add cost to your formula. And that's simply what we do as perfumers as well, you know, beyond the whole creative process is to also make that judgment on, can I afford to use this ingredient in my formula in the budget I have to be in, you know. I'm always someone who, when I I get more excited by the challenge of having to do something with $50 than with 500 in that, like, I think it's somehow more creative to be able to work with less than it is to, like, have all the tools at your disposal and all the ingredients at your disposal. Do you feel particularly inspired by, you know, having an unlimited budget or by having a super limited budget? I like to have a certain budget, you know, at my disposal, to be honest. But then I like what what you're saying, because it's true, you know, because then I think you could say the biggest art would be to make a $50 fragrance smell like $500, you know, you could do that to some extent, you know, but there are limits. Another factor that comes into account here is also the performance of the fragrance, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of times these higher-end so-called niche fragrances, they also have a higher fragrance level, which means uh, whether a fragrance is, uh, you know, at a 5 or 10% level and the rest is alcohol and water, or whether you have like 20, 30, or even more percent in the fragrance as a fragrance oil, and then the rest of it uh, water, you know, that also makes a big difference, you know. 
So it's also the quantity of fragrance that, that I use, let's say of the pure fragrance oil that varies. So what you have to do is when I say I like to have a certain budget because I just like to be able to use basically all the ingredients are our palette, you know. It's it's just that if you don't have a certain budget, then you are just limited to, let's say, um, you know, certain types of notes, you know, and not oh, all meaning of them. you like you get more inspired by doing the big budget fragrances. They give me more freedom. They give me more freedom. I think that's what it is, you know. But I I love you know I did a lot of work you know in the past years on Axe body sprays you know and those they had they are low dosage and obviously you know uh, the fragrance cost itself the investment is not the same as a fragrance for a, a niche brand um, and then to still have the performance let's say a, a powerful fragrance that lasts and that diffuses etc that's an amazing challenge you know and um, to be able to deal with that I think it's um, takes a lot of experience. And I like those challenges as well. You mentioned the word molecule. Is that interchangeable with like the idea of a synthetic fragrance or a synthetic ingredient? Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And on the spectrum of like the more like luxury, the bigger palette of uh, ingredients that you get to choose from with a higher budget and something on the lower end are synthetics and molecules on one end of the spectrum? Or is that not exactly how it's broken down? Actually, not even. You would think that you know and you would think that necessarily anything natural and um, is expensive and and better and you know any molecule or synthetic uh, ingredient is uh, cheap and uh, of lower quality but it's actually not the case a good way to look at it is just they have diff- they play different roles in fragrance so um, for example naturals they are actually a composition of many molecules good example is the rose you know like a rose the scent of a rose is probably composed of 150 different molecules so it's almost like a fragrance itself and then the molecules that we use they are you know very singular notes some of them have a little bit more faceted character but most of them they're very singular so imagine you know using a very thin line drawing a very thin line if you were to paint versus a large brush stroke. That's kind of how I would look at the natural and versus the, the molecule. The molecules um, are more so exact. They are more precise, exactly. So basically as a perfumer, when you work, and I, I love to work with both equally as a perfumer in my formula, what I'm looking for is if I'm looking to bring in a very precise note, you know, I would probably most likely go to molecule and to really, uh, you know, make my point effectively speaking with that rather than the natural. The naturals, they they add some complexity to the fragrance, you know. But yes, there are cheap molecules and they're expensive molecules, but there's also cheap naturals and very expensive naturals. Not to harp on this, but I would imagine in the natural world, you know, part of what creates the price of the natural is the supply, right? So something like amber or, you know, like some of these other pretty rare ingredients are incredibly expensive. I understand because they are hard to come by and they're hard to source or what, you know, or they're in short supply with a molecule that's created in the lab or isolated in the lab, I should say, isn't there an unending supply? So what is dictating the price of a molecule? Well, you know, I mean, actually, I did a little bit of chemistry when I I started, before I started my career. So, you know, when you know a little bit about chemistry, there is, in some cases, extremely complicated procedures 
and processes that have to be followed. The other thing is also the, the yield. And that's the same with the natural. It's actually the same thing with the, with the molecules. So maybe you will add a tremendous amount of a starting material to produce or to synthesize a molecule. And uh, as a result, you will get very, very little of your final product that you really want to obtain. So these are kind of concepts and it's the same with the natural, you know, where, for example, the, the jasmine, you know, the jasmine absolute, you need so many thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of petals of flowers in order to obtain maybe 100 gram of the extract itself. And then there's a labor involved in that. And when you when you look at molecules, it's it's different, but it's almost the same concept. So it's labor, it's yield, and all these factors. To take even a step back and sort of think about the history of fragrance, which this is the student trying to lecture the teacher. But I'm going to cobble together some some things that I've like heard and read, which are that like in the 70s and 80s, you know, fragrance was the world of fashion profoundly because all of a sudden designers could design whatever they wanted on the runway and didn't necessarily have to sell, you know, and to make their business because they had fragrance, right? They had fragrance, they had cosmetics, and it kind of changed the the way that fashion ended up evolving. Uh, fragrance, the fragrance boom, where everyone was wearing fragrance uh, in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, in the 2000s, and, and certainly more recently, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that fragrance has become, I bet you get a lot of people who come and say like, oh, I only want natural, or like fragrance is an irritant, or fragrance is an endocrine disruptor. Like fragrance is, has fallen a little bit in a funny way out of fashion. Have you seen that sort of rise and fall? Yes. I mean, I think definitely you could say that the consumer behavior has evolved. You know, you talked about the 80s, for example. I mean, the 80s was a period also where fragrances were very loud. They were almost screaming. They were very powerful. They were very diffusive. What did the 80s smell like? You know, Giorgio, Giorgio Beverly Hills. And then they had a Poison by Dior in, in France, in Europe. You had Opium by Yves Saint Laurent. I don't know if you know these fragrances, but I mean, they are, they are very powerful fragrances. I, mean, I was myself a, a teenager back then, and I started wearing fragrance. I was wearing Kuros, you know, by Yves Saint Laurent. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's, I mean, that's a huge, big statement. I could not wear that fragrance anymore today, you know. And basically, before entering a room, people would already know what you're wearing. So that, that was a very, there was a period where people were not shy. And even you would have at that time in, in, in the U.S., you would have restaurants that would say that you would not be allowed to enter the restaurant if you were wearing Georgia, you know. So that's that's how intense it got back then. And that's certainly not as much the case today. What is it like today, would you say? It's interesting. We've gone through so many stages because we also come from an era which I think is maybe fading out a little bit, where, which is the Gaumont fragrance. And those uh, sweet, fruity fragrances, I mean, they can also be quite powerful. Those are, you know, a little bit on their more final stages. I'm not saying we, we're not seeing new Gaumont fragrance, but they're maybe not as dominant as they used to, let's say, for the last 10 years. But overall, I would say the usage of fragrance, you know, the amount of heavy fragrance users is probably not growing. It's probably rather stagnant and uh, or maybe even a little bit on the decline. And it's interesting because we've done a lot of study, you know, to find out what's what's really happening. 
Obviously, it depends on which region you're talking about, which part of the world. But let's say, speaking of the U.S., it's interesting that we found that talking to consumers, that they are often seeing the fragrance as fulfilling a role or having a, a type of function, which means almost old-fashioned way of thinking that a woman would wear a fragrance if she's, you know, trying to seduce a man, you know, or another person. And the guy would wear fragrance because he wants to smell fresh and clean and be accepted by the woman. So that's that's a kind of behavior a lot of people have. So once they get married and have families, you know, they don't really see that reason anymore to wear fragrance. So, you know, you have a lot of people that at least don't wear on an as regular basis fragrance anymore, you know? So, but these are some explanations that are happening. I think also one thing in the US that's quite particular to the culture here is that people overall, maybe not recently looking in the news, but overall people are quite respectful of each other, you know? They don't like to invade other people's space. And that's something you could potentially, uh, could be perceived when you wear very strong fragrance. Do you think that the idea of a, like, signature fragrance the same thing in color cosmetics i think happened where the idea of like a signature makeup look for an individual has kind of fallen out of fashion for more like choice in somebody's routine do you see the same thing happening with fragrance where people have like instead of having maybe like two or three that they cycle between now they have several for whatever mood they're in yeah i mean Definitely, the number of launches of new fragrances has increased tremendously over the last 10, 20, 30 years. So definitely, there's a lot, a lot more choices out there. I think because of all these choices, because of heavy advertising and because of the exposure on any type of media to new products, people have more of a tendency to, to switch. I'm not sure if that's true, just thinking my, to myself, you know, maybe... The fact that in technology, which is so dominating in our life, we're always looking for the latest version of the next iPhone and the latest version of, you know, whatever electronics we're using. So maybe that also somehow influences us in our choices for other products. Uh, it's always this search for newness and to be up to date to find the next coolest thing the next best thing that's out there you know including fragrance so i think some of that also comes into play uh, you know when people have maybe more fragrance than they used to have i wanted to talk quickly about this idea of like a generation or like a moment defining fragrance because i think part of the reason we were so excited to talk to you is annie and i have been talking a lot recently about centall 33 and how it was ubiquitous in a way that like a fragrance, you know, hadn't to, in my sort of world had not been in a really long time. Like you could literally walk down the street in Brooklyn or in, in Manhattan or in Los Angeles or probably many other cities, Chicago, et cetera. And you could just smell. Those are the only three cities. <laughs> the only three cities <laughs> I've ever been to, but yeah, you, you, I mean, you could smell people a mile away wearing Centaur, and it spawned like even like a spoof song that uh, Mirror New York artist sang a song about Santal. Obviously, you're designing fragrances every day, all day. You know, did you know going into it, you were kind of creating something that was going to be like the biggest seller ever, or did you? Was it a nice surprise? And and how do you sort of see that its yeah. growth in life? I mean, I think you know, there's a few examples out there of fragrances that probably never anybody expected to become very popular or very broadly known and uh, identifiable, et cetera. You know, it's like 
fragrance like uh, light blue dolce gabbana you know that they were meant to be, uh, you know, some small fragrance, some flanker, you know, how they call them, like a seasonal product, let's say, for the summer. I created a fragrance for Brazil that was for many years in the top five ranking, which was also just like a Valentine's Day edition, you know, and then suddenly it became a, um, it got a big following. So, you know, it's it's very difficult to to control the creation to the extent where you could say, all right, now I'm I'm going to create a big success. You know, I think in general, a fragrance is successful when it sort of triggers an emotion with people. I think that's really how we, we wear fragrance. And um, I always like to make this very strong point, this uh, very firm belief I have that at the end of the day, you're wearing fragrance for yourself. People love to wear a fragrance maybe sometimes because of the reactions they get but i do think that overall you know if you you don't feel comfortable wearing a fragrance yourself you would probably not wear it so what's happening is that you know there's a connection happening when and that's really what we try to do with fragrance you know i mean we try to make you feel good we try to make you feel comfortable i mean interesting time these days too you know where people are looking for comfort or smell clean or feel safe etc when we create fragrances we try to tap into these emotions i think that also listening to you describe what can sort of pull people to a fragrance like you mentioned safety and comfort and i think that when i smell centaur i smell it feels it smells cozy to me like it's, mm-hmm. it smells like home. It smells like it smells like the inside of a coat. Like after a person has worn it, mm-hmm. like there, there's a yeah. There's but see, a sense those are comfort. Those are emotional. You know, those are sensations in a way. You know that you're describing, mm-hmm. and, and that's really um, what you're trying to achieve. And that's also maybe going back to your question about why people wear different types of fragrance because maybe they're also looking for a different type of sensation at a different moment of the day or in their life. And so it's definitely, yeah, comfort is definitely a a big piece that we all are looking for. And I think it's also some sense of feeling grounded. Again, going back to what we were saying about digitalization of the world and social media and this often virtual world we're living in, being on our phones and being on our screens, I think a certain type of fragrance can reconnect you a little bit with the earth, you know. And I I think that's something that probably is happening on the unconscious, but definitely something I think that that people are looking for. And, uh, you know, working with woody notes in general, I I personally, I love to work with woody notes. I mean, the, the tree symbolizes really the the spine of the world somehow it's grounding uh, it's grounding you know the roots are connected in the earth you know that's how a tree stands because of its roots so i i do feel that using these type of notes unconsciously also help people to feel somewhat grounded and comforted and safe so you look at a lot of research and uh, you do a lot of data analysis you said and studies and probably like consumer segmenting and stuff. I I was wondering if I just tell you the fragrances that dominated my life in different points, whether you could kind of like uh, analyze me or tell me sort of what segment I fit into. Ready? So Sleepaway Camp, I was obsessed with Tommy Boy. Okay. The uh, original Tommy Men's fragrance. It was called Tommy Boy. (laughs) Tommy boy, I have to think about that. Yeah, yeah and I, I wore so much of it that actually at the end of Sleepaway Camp, 
my friends took one of my t-shirts and sprayed it with Tommy Boy and then all ripped it up so they could each take a piece of it to like, you know, like remember when it was so sad to like leave sleepaway camp, but that was like what they did. Um, and okay. then after Tommy Boy, it was Gucci rush for men. Oh, no, that's a good one. Yeah, I know that. Which was really fucking cool. I don't know why they discontinued that. Yeah. Sorry, you're figures. saying he has good taste? Definitely. Well, no, yeah, no, I mean, the whole thing yet. <laughs> I think, I think definitely you grew up between the Tommy Boy and the Gucci Rush. You know, yes. definitely there's a there's a big shift happening there. Yes. <laughs> and then it was probably Santal, and then it was Tom Ford Violet Blonde and Giorgio Armani Privé Rose Derby. Mm-hmm. And now I'm wearing Frederick Mall Carnal Flower. So you got a raise. Mm-hmm. And at some point. I alternate between <laughs> Carnal Flower and Glossier U. All right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, and they're all very different, you know. So definitely you have many different facets to, to yourself, to your personality. There's um, not a through line? Some, mm, well, you know, definitely, I mean, you ended up in the niche world. So that's what they sort of have in common, you know, Tommy Boy. It's a beautiful fragrance and, uh, you know, it's, I would say it's probably a more classic structure and, you know, you went there, you know, other, let's say teenagers or young boys, probably they, they start with Axe actually, you know, the body sprays that's sort of their first exposure to fragrancing themselves. It's an age where you sort of um, looking for some type of confirmation of your manlyhood or growing up being a man etc and um, your evolution has become much more sophisticated some fragrances are i would say maybe a little bit more intellectual because they are not as easy to understand i always remember that teacher when i went to perfumery school many years ago that always said to us you know you never say you don't like a fragrance you say you don't understand the fragrance. <laughs> and that stuck with me. But certainly there's some type of fragrance are just carnal flower from Frédéric Mal. You know, it's like this very strong, heady tuberose, you know, combined with a musky note. So, I mean, those are strong statements and they are also very bold, let's say. So I think it also requires a good level of confidence. Yeah, you also, need to feel I comfortable. Wear, I wear fragrance to bed. Is that weird? Like I put it on before no. I go to sleep. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I, I don't think so, you know. And I'm sure it's a certain type of fragrance that you would want to wear when you go you go to bed. Um, <laughs> he wears Tommy Boy to go to bed. <laughs> Tommy Boy, yes. To remind me of my youth. <laughs> Back to the roots, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say probably not carnal flower, no? Or no. am I wrong? No, okay. no, not carnal flower. So I guess to switch lanes a little bit, in skincare specifically, there's a lot of hubbub about fragrance-free versus fragrance products, so much so that like a huge influencer, for instance, just launched a skincare line and all the products had fragrance in it and the skincare community was up in arms and they actually don't think it ended up doing that well in the end because I think it really tainted the launch. Can you like dispel any misunderstandings for the consumer when it comes to fragrance and skincare specifically? Or is there any truth to the idea that it can be like very irritating? No, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to understand for consumers that all the fragrance ingredients that we use in perfumery, we are sort of a self-regulated industry. But, you know, there are institutions, international institutions that sort of oversee 
all the ingredients that we use in our fragrances, including even makeup, skincare, etc. So all these ingredients have been tested. They have been tested for skin sensitivity, not causing any allergic reactions, etc., rashes or something like that. They are safe to be used in these products. Now, that doesn't mean that some people can be particularly sensitive to certain ingredients. And, you know, out of 100 people, you maybe have one person or out of, out of a thousand or a million, you will have these few people that are more sensitive to certain ingredients, whether they're fragrance ingredients or whether even certain skincare products. And in skincare products, fragrance is used at a very, very low level. And a lot of times, actually, the role of the, the fragrance there, it's, it's sort of a functional, similar to any other consumer products, where basically the role is number one, sometimes to mask off a base odor because all these skincare products, I think nowadays they're doing amazingly well in, in creating bases, you know, like the raw product, the raw creams and, and lotions, etc. They hardly have any smell to themselves, but sometimes they do. So, you know, the fragrance is there to sort of mask that base odor on one hand. And also to, um, let's say, reinforce the type of sensation you're looking for when you use a certain skincare product. So whether it's moisturizing or whether it, I don't know, uh, supposed to be make your skin look more shiny, etc. Again, with a, a fragrance, you can sort of enhance that sensation. And that's the role of the fragrance. I'm I'm kind of in the camp where I think, like you said, a lot of ingredients can be irritants. And so to completely cut off the idea of having any fragrances in your products is very extreme. But I, too, don't have super sensitive skin, so I don't have to be as careful yeah. as some people. I think by and large, there does seem to be like an over-indexing into like way too cautious on the Internet. There's a place for both, you know, clearly for me. And and as the, there are detergents, you know, uh, laundry detergents that are fragrance. So, you know, we all have uh, we ha all have options today. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's not a bad thing to have certain skin products that are fragrance free, you know, specifically for those that are more sensitive. I think uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I think a lot of people's issue with fragrance is wrapping their heads around this idea of like, it doesn't have a function. It's not active. It's not sort of like doing something. It's like extra it's unnecessary it's just for marketing you see that a lot yeah but i think you could you could say the same thing about packaging and to me in the projects that i've worked on like the the way that something feels in your hand the way that it dispenses the way that it looks in your bathroom like is all part of your interaction with a product and as would the way it smells like it it all plays into like your experience of the product so it's not just whether this clears up your acne. It's whether you enjoy looking at it, you enjoy using it. It's easy to get the product out of the jar, out of the tube, like whatever it is. Like it's all part of like a... It's an experience. Yeah. yeah. It's an experience. No, I totally agree with you. And fragrance, most of the time, unconsciously, plays a huge role in that experience, you know, a huge role. And I think that's the one thing about the, the olfactive sense, you know, the sense of smell. It's something that we haven't been educated in the same way as on the other senses, you know, like uh, the, the vision or the, the hearing. Just think of visual arts and how the vision guides us through life, you know, uh, crossing the street. 
safely and 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 the hearing as well you know and the sense of smell in a way has always been a little bit more pushed back and our education on how to describe sense and how to talk about the olfaction is is extremely limited that's so true our education has not focused on that and probably so because you know the the sense of smell is more associated with animal think about it i mean the, yeah. the animals that's really how they mostly guide themselves through through their their life like you don't go to the nose doctor every year you don't take a you don't take a scent test that makes me think about the idea of like expiration dates on a lot of food products, especially in the U.S. It's like we are throwing stuff out based on a date rather than using our like human sense of smell and like learning, mm -hmm. you know, like at this point, I don't even think I'm educated enough to tell if like milk is spoiled. <laughs> I just kind of just go by the date on the thing or like some meats. But, you know, if you don't grow up doing that and like having that education, then you have no use for for your nose. Exactly. Exactly. I think probably the only things we are really uh, alerted by because we have somewhat edu been educated, you know, the fellow smell of fire, you know, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think that's something, you know. And yet we have fucking photo, we have faux de bois candles, like, and we're, shouldn't fire <laughs> yeah. be like a signal to our brain that we're like, should get out of the place or it's a bad yeah. thing and no, we bring it into our homes. Smell, you know, they smell more like wood and, you know, mesquite. I don't know. But yes, no, you're right. But, we know how to differ differentiate the, like a dangerous fire from a burning candle. Speaking of more sort of like basic animalistic aspects of fragrance, I had a thought or like a memory of reading an article about how the author was connecting the rise of, you know, fragrance, you know, as you make them like a bottle of fragrance with divorce rates. And hear me out. The thesis was basically that you know, we're attracted to people based on their pheromones, their natural smell. And the minute that humankind started masking their natural smell with deodorants and soaps and then fragrance, you know, humans started to lose sight or lose sense rather of what they were, were actually sort of intrinsically and animalistically attracted to. So they would maybe marry someone or couple with someone who they weren't actually compatible with. And thus, like the rise in perfume sales also, you know, like correlated to the rise in divorce rates. Meanwhile, you, you wear what fragrance you to bed. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> I wear fragrance. Well, if you never stop wearing fragrance, then you never have to like reveal your, your secret. Yeah, I really have to think about that one. You know, that's a very, very interesting concept. Not so sure if I, I agree with that. Um, Nick, you're indirectly blaming him for the rise of divorce <laughs> yeah you know well, so i, I, did a little I bit do of not like the idea <laughs> to uh, generate uh, increased divorce rate through my fragrances you know i, I hope I that's did a not little the research, case and this makes you feel better which basically there's a I, I read an article in psychology today from many years ago but it's it had a couple of points one of which was <laughs> psychology that we, many years ago <laughs> One of which is that we are drawn to fragrances that actually complement or accentuate our natural smell versus ones that would like be the complete opposite of our smell. And number two, that our mates uh, would eventually come like after maybe the first sexual encounter there, our mates would then come to sort of know our actual natural smell. So like to say that you would never smell someone's real smell in a relationship or before you even got to a relationship or got to marriage is, is probably unlikely. 
But there was one piece of research that I thought was interesting. Basically, in this article, one of the researchers basically argues that hygiene was an impediment to sexual signaling. So the the minute that we had basically showering scents and soap, we had to get our noses, and this is a quote, we have to get our noses and mouths really up close to people to get a good idea of their biochemistry. People are motivated or more motivated to do a lot more kissing and petting to do that assessment before they have sex. In other words, the need to smell our mates and the comparative difficulty of doing so in today's environment are perfumes and colognes may actually be driving the sexual disinhibition of modern society. So basically, mm. now we're crediting you with making people fuck more because you have to like do it quickly to figure out what people smell like. Well, that's a lot of things, a lot of information, <laughs> a lot of different facts there. Okay. I think for sure that being in a relationship with somebody and being married even more so, and I'm married you know, almost 30 years myself, you definitely get to to know your partner at every level, which means with fragrance, without fragrance, before the shower, after the shower. So I think definitely I don't agree with the argument that fragrance takes away from that. But I have to say that somebody wearing a fragrance that I hate or me wearing a fragrance that somebody else hates definitely would have a huge impact on our relationship. And in that sense, fragrance plays a very important role in our social interaction and whether we like somebody or whether we don't like somebody. So maybe the same person wearing two different type of fragrance at different occasions, if I meet that person the wrong day, which means when that person is wearing a fragrance that I absolutely hate, honestly, I think the chances for me to get closer to that person are not as likely as if that person was wearing a fragrance that I absolutely adore. In our social relationships in the world, you know, whether it's friends, whether it's parents, grandmothers, etc., it does play an important role, you know, what fragrance a person is wearing, because also the association that we make with it. If your um, ex-boyfriend was wearing this and this uh, fragrance, and then you meet somebody else wearing that, I'm sure it would somehow be um, difficult for you to fall in love with another person that wears the same fragrance that, you know, somebody you broke up with in the past. Depends on which ex-boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Some of them had better taste than others. Do you wear fragrance yourself? I do, yeah. yeah. What do you wear? Um, most of them are woody fragrance, I have to admit. Sometimes they are fragrance that I create. Sometimes they actually other perfumers' fragrances. Right now, I like to wear... Saiku uh, from a Nomenclature, which is a really cool niche brand. And it's a phrase, you know, that's based on uh, coumarin, which is a molecule, like a very ancient molecule, I would say, that's been around. And that's sort of the spin of their brand, you know. So rather than having a natural hero ingredient, they uh, have as a hero ingredient, they have a molecule. And then, of course, there's natural ingredients in there. So that's that's something I wear, you know, it's very comfortable. In the summer, I like to wear different fragrance, uh, maybe um, Aqua di Gio Profumo, you know, in the summer. I wear Santal, of course, sometimes. When I travel, I uh, wear Terre d'Hermes, that somehow has become a, a little bit of a ritual. I mean, not lately anymore, unfortunately, but, um, you know, go in a duty-free store and put on Terre d'Hermes. So, uh, yeah, 
I definitely love to wear a fragrance. Just not at work, you know, for technical reasons, I won't. Is there such thing as nose fatigue? Like, so if you're at home and wearing a fragrance or you have a candle burning and you you get used to fragrance, right? So how do you, how do you stay alert nose-wise? I think it's mostly through switching, which means typically I work on, on, on several projects, uh, many projects at the same time. So, you know, by switching from one to another, my sense of smell sort of gets neutralized again and um, I'm more alert again, you know, by maybe one day working on a fruity fragrance and the next day working on a floral and uh, another day on a spicy fragrance. So I think it's it's really by, by switching, not always smelling the same. I think this, uh, what we call habituation effect, you know, that definitely will happen when you always smell the same or very similar smell. That's also when, you know, people sometimes wear, wear only one fragrance. They always wear the same fragrance. And maybe after 10 years, they're not aware anymore that, you know, it's really overpowering and people complain because they don't smell it themselves anymore. Is that why they have coffee grounds in fragrance counters? Because it's just a different smell? Exactly. I I think that's really the main reason. It allows you to sort of reset. I mean, there's another way actually that works quite well is to breathe into your sleeve. Let's say your your armpit and, and, you know, to smell through some type of fabric just to sort of neutralize or clean your your nostrils let's say and uh, the coffee yeah it's just such a particular smell that's so different that it sort of resets your nose and do you have any hacks for making fragrance last longer or is it just based on the fragrance are there like can you put it do you mix it with something or can you make something last longer so it stays smelly all day oh i would say that is really uh, rather than reapplying it 20 times a day i think no there's no there's no secret really to that but it very much depends on the environment you're in when i travel i used to travel regularly to brazil or other countries in latin america you know the climate conditions really change completely your fragrance experience so the high level of humidity and and the heat and so on can definitely make a fragrance fade away but there's no secret fixative for something that um, will make your fragrance last longer. What about like applying it on your skin versus your clothes? That's a good point. You know, I mean, definitely, um, you know, what happens on your skin is through the, your body temperature, there's a evaporation process happening. So, I mean, that's undoubtedly something that's happening and that is not happening on fabric. So um, when you apply a fragrance on a scarf or, um, you know, on, on a coat, it will not evaporate as fast and fade away, you know, as on your skin. So that's a good way to um, have your fragrance linger a little longer by spraying it on your clothes. Yeah, got a good point. You got a good point, Nick. Finally, the other run. stuff was questionable. I've been, <laughs> I've been striking out with my like crediting you or blaming yeah, the you divorce for the divorce rate, rate. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just remember reading. I think it's. In, I think it's just. It's an interesting idea. If like you think about, we're all animals, right? And so like if animals, if dogs, all of a sudden started spraying themselves with all different, you know, they would probably go crazy. Like they wouldn't know who to mate with and who not to mate with and, and all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there was a fragrance out there. Oh, my dog. don't know if you what? remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was um, it supposed to smell like? It smelled pretty good, actually, you know. It was very light and fresh. And, um, and then they actually also developed a fragrance, Oh, My Cat. I think there was two guys that used to work at Givenchy. So in the luxury uh, design area, 
and uh, they created these fragrances. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're still around, but definitely I think there's a market for it. <laughs> are you competitive? Like, do, are there any fragrances that you wish you had created or that you're like jealous of? Yeah, I think Ted MS is definitely, you know, the one that's for me. It's 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 a real masterpiece, and and I love those woody notes. So uh, definitely, I think that's uh, something that uh, Jean Claude Elena could be very proud of, you know, and I'm sure he is. We had one more question. So coronavirus, obviously, one of the symptoms is a loss of smell, and it's unclear at this point, like how long or whether there would be a lasting impact. Number one, or I guess part A, have you insured your sense of smell or can you insure your sense of smell? And part B is how are you sort of safeguarding yourself against COVID in, in light of the fact that it could be career ending? Not to, yeah. not to be too dramatic. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, for sure, it would be a concern if I lose my sense of smell. And fortunately, I haven't. And also, I have been able to stay away from COVID so far, you know, knock on wood. And um I'm, my nose is not insured, but you could. I, I, I know of people who have insured their nose. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm more like the type of person, you know, I trust in life and, you know, try to be optimistic and uh, think I'll, I'll be fine. You're like, I've smelled every smell, every molecule. Yeah, and you know, you know, after, I don't know, close to 30 years of my career, you also get to a point where you can um, formulate. And I do that when I work remotely, you know, without smelling my work. And I have oh, wow. others smelling it. So, you know, I, I like to call it virtual perfumery. So, yeah, it's, you know, when you, you have experience, you can start creating fragrance without smelling them. I do prefer to smell them still, you know, but um, it's it's possible. It's possible. So I think I could potentially get away for a while, you know, if I lost my sense of smell, just continue creation without anybody noticing. Nick. You're going to make fun of me. I never make fun of you. This is a safe space. Well, my product of the week, which is the segment that we're in right now, is from Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if you're new to the show, Nick has found a pattern that I sometimes talk about Japan and things that are from Japan. Yep. Like one goes to Japan once vibes. I've been three times, so I think I can talk about it three times worth of the ones. Okay. Yep. By all means. But guess what? You can, the funny story is this product I bought in the U S so suck on that. I went to Japan the first time I ended up in some like drugstore type place in this little town called Konji that is known for their like vintage shops. And anyway, it's a totally normal like Japanese version of like a CVS, I guess. And they had a section with like hair ties and hair accessories. And so I bought and they sell them one by one, which I think is like genius. That's cool. Because you really only I, I'm the type that I can keep my hair ties for a very long time. I I wear them until the elastic wears out and they stretch and they no longer work. But the the hair ties in Japan are like very, very, very well done. Very nice. It's like if you're a you know how we were talking about like Patagonia North Face nerds like. Yeah. guys that are like gear nerds and that's kind of like a cool fashion guy thing so if you like excuse me are you like watching Sorry. a tv show while i'm trying to do my product <laughs> review no 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 nick Continue. is scrolling through instagram not listening to <laughs> his no, this own is fucking interesting. podcast it's about a hair tie in japan sorry i'm not more riveted continue 
They look like um, the tie cables for like campers. If you like, if you're a gearhead, like uh, like a belay, like a yes. Give me some of that like interaction, Nick. Okay. What? Yeah, a belay. I'm back in. I'm back okay. in. I'm back in. Okay. It looks like it, it has that kind of like you know, like a braided rope of like different yes, colors. It. It's like very cool. Chic. Oh my god, I need this. Yes. So, and I I paid however many yen for them in Japan. Blah blah blah. One time, this woman who shall remain nameless asked to borrow one because she saw it on my wrist, which I thought was very rude because I was like, this is my Japanese hair tie. Like I'm not going to like, <laughs> people act like hair ties. You can just like, yeah, it's, like, it's like give a penny, hair ties, take a penny. Hair ties don't grow on trees, right? Yeah. So buy that one. Anyway, I was out, I was walking on Soho one day and wandered into a jewelry store called Love Adorned. And which I guess it's not Soho. It's like, somewhere else over there no lita okay no yeah. lita and they had a whole bowl of them the and i was like Japanese where brand? did you get they're unbranded and of course love adorned they tie them up in like a pack of five and they charge like fucking like 25 dollars for them so what do i do i buy three <laughs> <laughs> packs so i've never run out of my japanese hair ties again that's, I feel like, smart. I've been buying in bulk. I think it's the pandemic <laughs> mentality where, like, I'll buy, I'm like, maybe these things will sell. It was, like, still the toilet paper. This like, was before the pandemic. <laughs> oh, really? No, I, like, now will, like, buy, like, Casey's like, why did you buy, like, eight months supply of vitamins? I'm like, because I don't know when they're going to be back. Vitamins go bad. Really? Yeah. You Even should check you the expiration date. Yeah, of course. Hmm. It's not hairspray, Nick. It's you put that in your body. Okay, let me check the expiration <laughs> date on those then. My product of the week is nothing. And the reason why it's nothing is because it's been a slow week and I want to be always honest with you our our loyal listeners and if I don't have something that's exciting me this week, I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> I will say Shout out to Malika in Morocco, who is the woman who um, wove the rug for our daughter's room. I just got the rug. I know I've talked about how Etsy is amazing, but I found this woman and her daughter on Etsy, and they make Moroccan rugs in Morocco, and they'll do whatever colors and design you want, and I just got it. I unrolled it. It's fucking amazing, and shout out to Malika. I'm going to, in our episode related slideshow i'm going to include a picture of this rug because it looks amazing and i recommend anyone looking for like a cool floor solution to check out malika she was also really easy to work with and to customize stuff with and i am a, a huge fan her in her etsy is handicraft by malika it sounds like you did have a product this week I guess I did. I think you already called that one as your product of the week. When I didn't give her name because I wanted to see how it turned out. And it turned out phenomenally. So have at it. She, she's amazing. I mean, like, and it was... The integrity, Nick. The integrity you have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to wait. I wanted to make sure. I wanted to vet it. I wanted to make sure that I was happy with the result. And it's beautiful. And it's 8 by 10 and it has all these little multicolored dots all over it. It's super plush. So my, my biggest desire in designing a rug for the nursery <laughs> was that it was thick enough that if someone drops the baby on her head, <laughs> that she'll like basically bounce, bounce back up like a trampoline. And mm. this one is super thick. It's probably like two inches thick. 
<laughs> no broken babies here. Shall we call it? Is that this episode? Can we just ask also for the beauty industry to like release some stuff, give us some news, like give something. us something, something like, to work with. You're putting the rest of the beauty industry out of business. Yeah, like, exactly. Consider our podcast. This is and has been Eyewitness Beauty. We are produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our theme music is by Danny Prezant, and our album art is by Simon Abronowitz. Additional research support was brought to us and you by Alicia Bansall. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty, and you can send episodes to your friends if you think that they would like the show. And another thing you could do is you can email us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. And DM us at eyewitnessbeauty. And just generally support us and send us good vibes. We'll be back, of course, next week with another brand new episode. And we will talk to you then. Rest in peace. Let's just all make it through next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>